European Union has not treated us well. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream, the progressive politics podcast from Brussels. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now, covering politics and the economy. In this episode, we speak with Tony Blair, who gives us his formula for taking on nationalist populists and winning. Blair says Britain is making a profound historical mistake by capitulating to the Brexiteers, but he has a message for Europe too. Do more to stand up for values, not just narrow national interests. We begin the show with another warning against complacency. Andrew Strohlein is the European media director for Human Rights Watch, a group investigating and reporting abuses in all corners of the world. In Europe, some far-right and extremist parties failed to do quite as well as expected in May's elections. But Strohlein says Europeans must remain alert to the ways these parties are eroding their rights and freedoms. I first asked Strohlein about this year's milkshaking phenomenon. Hadn't the British led the way by using dairy product projectiles to splatter the clothes and faces of enemies of human rights? Didn't Brexit party leader Nigel Farage and Muslim baiter Stephen Yaxley-Lennon deserve every last sweet and sticky drop? And how good is Strohlein's own aim? I've never thrown a food item in, in, for political reasons. <laughs> per, purely personal family events. Oh, yeah. I mean, food fights and, and, and whatnot uh, in, in earlier days, but not, uh, they were strictly apolitical. How did you feel about that when you, when you saw that stuff going on? I think it does it, you know, show some of the frustration that people have with some of these ugly figures getting an enormous amount of media attention. But unfortunately, what it does is just get those ugly figures more media attention. As a form of violence, it's not the most violent thing you can do. But I think there are better ways to protest, to be honest. So I guess no moves on your part to set up a milkshake kiosk on Place Luxembourg now that we have a few more far-right members of the European Parliament? No, the uh, the talks between uh, Human Rights Watch and Quickburger have actually <laughs> fallen uh, apart now, and, and, and those plans have been scratched. <laughs> Quick. Quick, of course, they are the big they milk- milkshakes. I don't even know. I think they, they are. No, I think they are the big milkshake maker here. But, you know, the, with the hipsterfication of the world, maybe we're looking more at a kind of a, a smoothie franchise, you know, more fruit than milk. Yeah, something like a wheatgrass drink, something like that. Yeah, but make it really healthy. That would leave yeah. a very satisfying no, I green. Think, uh, I think there's, there's got to be better ways of, of protesting and getting your message across than to uh, make miniature milkshake martyrs out of these people. There is a serious point here, right? That, uh, is there? <laughs> okay, good. That at least the milkshake was a sort of symbol of progressive revolt, which is interesting because often the far right, you know, they, they can bandy around symbols very effectively, but maybe the progressives have just not been as good at, at that kind of thing. I don't know. Maybe progressives need more of that. Progressives aren't nearly as good at creating these kind of universal symbols that get universal. It's so easy to be 
extreme right. You know, it's very simple. You have a very simple narrative. All of these people are attacking me because I'm, you know, this this you know, helpless white male and everybody hates me and boo-hoo. And look at all these people coming in and they're not like me. And, oh, my gosh, I don't want to talk to them and they're scary. And So I can have a symbol. You know, making a symbol that represents that and, and just being hate is super easy. Coming up with a symbol that actually represents universal values, our fundamental rights, a kind of very inclusive vision of the world, I, I think that's that's a, that's harder to get to get across to people. It isn't as if Place Luxembourg, where the members of the European Parliament can party with their stagiaires and have drinks with sure. lobbyists and this kind of thing, is going to be crawling with far right members of the European Parliament. Nonetheless, they did do better than they did in the last round. I, I would actually go back one step, like before the elections. And we had a lot of warnings, uh, a lot of worries that the, the far right was going to do very well uh, and have a real surge. Organizations like ours, like Human Rights Watch, were worried specifically because these parties are attacking the very concept of universal fundamental human rights, okay? They believe that rights are for certain sets of people because of the color of their skin or their sexuality, they have a very limited view of who should have rights, whereas as an international human rights organization, obviously we believe that human rights are universal. And that was a real threat. And we were one of the many, many organizations warning that our rights are at stake. Then we move into the second time period and after the elections and people said, okay, well, it didn't really come to pass. They did better, but they didn't do super well. So all of those warnings were maybe, you know, for nothing, which to me is a crazy argument because I would say, well, maybe some of those warnings actually worked, right? I mean, maybe that's why some people, you know, a few extra percent got out and went to the polls and maybe it just got a few extra people out who voted for parties that weren't trying to take away fundamental human rights. And so now we're in this post-election period, and we're looking at a stronger but not excessively strong far-right at the European level. But there's another danger that we're actually going to get complacent about that, that we're going to say, they didn't do so well, so don't worry about it, or don't worry about it for the next five years or something, and we'll be fine, right? It's like, no, these parties are in power in several countries in the European Union, or they share power, they're in a coalition uh, in other countries. And they still pose a massive threat. They pose a massive threat to our human rights and to the rights of people living in those countries and as a movement across Europe. To that point, if you try and count up the members of the nationalist populist far right, everything from Fidesz of Hungary and the Law and Justice Party of Poland, all the way out to the white supremacist neo-Nazis, it's still a bit tough to do it precisely because there's some very obscure parties with members of the European Parliament mm -hmm. who have kind of popped in and out. Yeah, and of, not only that, there's yeah. actually individuals as well. So there's individuals within parties that, you know, you look at the the party overall and you could say, okay, well, that party is right. You know, it's on the right, no question. But there are very prominent individuals within the par those parties that are you know, very much of the hard right, of the far right, and are pumping out very ugly, hate-mongering, fear-mongering messages. The party itself can almost have like a soft Euroscepticism or almost kind of a neutral attitude towards the European Union, mm. but yet there can be people within it with these kind of objectionable views when yeah. it comes to questions of rights and respect. Yeah. Yeah. 
Anyway, in terms of my back-of-the-envelope math, I came up with these numbers that in 2014, there were around 10 to 14 percent far-right, hard-right. And then in 2019, it's more like 18, 19 to 23 percent, depending again on who you count. Yeah, and and you 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 only have to look at a couple of countries and how these parties are playing at national level to really get very concerned about it. You know, look, if you look here in Belgium and the uh, an extremist, very far-right party, Vlaams Belang, has come in and did very well in elections. And it surprised a lot of people. But if you were really paying attention, you know, there's a party that was on the right, well on the right, with individuals who were very much pushing fear-mongering and all of the Islamophobic uh, you know, nonsense that anybody else does on the extreme right. And they kind of open the door. So this is what we see. You know, we see that we have far-right parties opening the door to extreme-right parties with their rhetoric and sometimes their policies. And those far-right parties, they now have almost the moniker of mainstream. And this is what we call you know, the Overton window. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how... Yeah, just explain, just explain the Overton window for those. Right. Days. So there's a, concept, there's a concept in politics and communications called an Overton window. And it's an idea that on any issue, there's a spectrum of ideas or beliefs that that spread from everything that from both extremes, if you want to say left, right, extreme or whatever. And there's a window of kind of public acceptability to those policies. And so, you know, what is generally going to win the support of a sizable chunk of people? And that Overton window can be shifted to the right or to the left in certain ways. And some people will throw ideas that are really radical and far outside the Overton window, but it makes other ideas that are just slightly less crazy, it may just slip them into the, you know, window of acceptability. You know, we see a lot of that going on. We saw that a lot, you know, we've seen that in the US and we've seen that a lot in in Europe. How ideas that were once thought sort of beyond the pale are now kind of like center. (laughs) That's the most worrying thing. And in a way, that's where I think sometimes, you know, the extremist of the extreme, you know, street fighting far right parties are actually less worrying and less of a threat to democracy than the mainstreaming of their ideas by so-called mainstream politicians. Yeah. And in your previous example, I think you were referring to the uh, new Flemish alliance, which uh, for you would have widened the Overton window for groups like the Vlaams Belang, the Flemish interest, to win big in these last elections. Yeah. And so the NVA, some people in Belgium would consider them a party on the right, but they have individuals, very prominent individuals. For example, there's a man by the the name of Theo Franken, who was in the last government, the state secretary for migration and refugees. And, you know, every few days, every couple of weeks or whatever, he would tweet something about, you know, the threat of Sharia law and how there were no-go zones and all of the far-right nonsense tropes that the far-right love. And he thought, I'm going to pull in some of these, you know, far-right voters, and that'll, you know, that'll be great for us. And actually, what he did was just send a lot of voters to the Vlaams Belang, the even farther right. Um, and it wasn't just him in the NVA as well. I mean, there was um, uh, Jambon, the, the... Jan Jambon. Jan Jambon, yeah. He said things after the Brussels attacks, for example, that Belgian Muslims were dancing in the street. And then everybody's like, no, they weren't. Could you show us some video of this accusation? Of course, there was no video proof, and that you know, if you remember, the comments made by Trump and others in the in, in the U.S. about you know Muslim Americans you know, celebrating on 9/11, and when asked for any evidence of this, of course they can't come up with it because it's just bullshit. It's just selling lies to sell fear and to sell hate and to tend to get people to believe that they are somehow under attack from this really powerless minority. It's the powerful trying to tell people that the powerless 
are a threat. Let's talk about what Human Rights Watch, your organization, was doing ahead of the May 23-26 European Mm -hmm. Parliament elections. You had a series of videos. Mm -hmm. The tagline was, when you think of elections, think human rights. Our vote, our rights was the hashtag. Tell me a little bit about that campaign, how it was trying to deal with the communications issue. Communications for anything to do with things that are happening on a European level are frighteningly complicated because of the language issue. There is no there is no European media, really, right? There is no international media, really. There is national media, and that's what's important, especially in terms of politics, right? So if you're trying to jump into national media in you know, 28 different countries, good luck. I hope you have a nice big budget. Um, so we did it in eight countries, so that, that was what we were able to do. The European Parliament helps protect the human rights of 510 million people across the EU on issues that matter to all of us and our families, on the right to be safe at work, the right to breathe clean air, the right not to face discrimination because of who we are. The members we elect will help ensure that Europe's powerful institutions protect us and treat people fairly. Some may think these elections don't matter much because we might be leaving the EU soon. But Brexit is unpredictable, and no one knows how long we'll stay in. In many places in the European Union, the the European elections are seen as kind of less important, and so people don't show up. Or a lot of people in Europe see them as a chance to kind of give their national government, you know, a punch in the nose, right? Like, this, I'm going to use this as a protest against whatever's happening on the national level. And we wanted to kind of break out of that and say, you know, there are other things going on here. Like, there are serious fundamental issues at stake. And we want you to understand that actually, you know, these are your rights, that there are now political forces that want to take them away. And you think, okay, well, they're not going to take away my rights, they're going to take away those other guys' rights. But that's not, that's just not the way it works, right? Once you start cracking away at universal rights and say, okay, well, this group of people doesn't, you know, doesn't really have the same rights as the others. And this group of people is sort of, okay, they're second class citizens. Okay. And this group of people, okay, we'll use them for medical experiments. I mean, you know, you, you see this progression uh, that's how it always works. And that's why, you know, we have to stick to universal rights and equality of rights under the law. These videos were appealing to people who right. probably are going to vote for centrists or at least people who respect rights. And well, they weren't going to change anybody's mind from the far right. That's for sure. I mean, they were, they were right. going to look at that and go, oh, boy, Human Rights Watch said I should be. <laughs> like, we weren't going to have, Well, have. no, I mean, precisely. So, I mean, how do you, how do you sort of assess how well they did in, in a couple yeah, of countries. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. I think, you know, judging like their impact, you know, you can use numbers and metrics and views, and sometimes they're picked up by national media outlets, and uh, sometimes, you know, we got media interviews off the back of that. So, you know, I think the real, in most, in most cases, what we're really trying to do is just say, you know what, this is important. You only get a vote once every five years and use it. You know, if you look at the overall results, you can look at it as and say, you know, okay, 18, 20% or whatever you want to say percent. For the far right. Voters on the far right and, and these these parties that want to take our fundamental rights away. Or you could look at it and say, well, 80% of the people voted for parties that don't want to do that. So, you know, that's pretty good, actually. You know, we're never probably going to get away and get shot of, you know, ex- the extreme right and fascists and, and all the crazies, you know, 100%, right? So 80-20. I'd rather it be 90-10, 95-5. I think we all would. But, you know, 
it could have been worse. And so your view is that some of these warnings worked. Well, I think so. I mean, you know, that's what I see now. It's like people basically there's this analysis that's kind of, you know, this is narrative like, okay, well, people kind of over, you know, people exaggerated. People were, these are dire warnings. Why bother with the dire warnings? And my point is, well, why don't, rather than just dismiss what was said beforehand, why don't you actually do some analysis and see if it worked? You know, let's actually dig in and see if some of these warnings actually got a few extra percent of people to vote uh, and and really look into that. Uh, and I think you'll see that, you know, again, it wasn't just Human Rights Watch. It was lots of other organizations, lots of individuals, lots of commentators, and all of those warnings. I mean, did people going into the election, you know, going into the voting booth, have some of these things in their mind? And I, I, I cannot think that they didn't. I mean, it, must, it was definitely this narrative that we cre- helped to create, along with many other organizations and individuals, certainly existed. It was certainly out there. It was very strong. And for some people, I don't know, hope, hopefully they got them out of bed in the morning down to the polling booth. <laughs> So I asked you to challenge me All right, yeah. on, <laughs> Here we on whether I really on whether I really kind of understood the extent of the extremism that we're seeing right. among these far right European parties. Uh-huh. It's multiple choice. Yeah, there's three questions. But the first the first one is going to be a guess who said it. Right. So I'm going to give you three quotes by three different people. OK. And those quotes, you're going to have to figure out which of the people said them. OK. It's person one, two, three, and it's quote ABC. All right, let me grab, oh, yeah, grab let, me, let me grab a notebook. Everybody out there in, in podcast land, <laughs> grab a pen. Come on. Come on. All right. So, first question. I'm going to give you the three names of the people first. Okay. So one is Czech president Milos Zeman, been Czech president for quite a while. Uh, the second person is Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orbán. Boom. Okay, we don't like him. And the third is by the New Zealand extreme right wing mass murderer Brenton Tarrant, who slaughtered 51 people in Christchurch in March 2019. And it's a line from his manifesto. Okay, okay. that's a little harder to be flippant about. Yeah. It is. But yeah. just to show you how extreme the language has got in mainstream politics, this is where we're at. All right. Quote A Millions of invaders are landing on our shores and conquering our towns. Okay. The next one is, we don't see these people as Muslim refugees. We see them as Muslim invaders. Okay. The last quote is, I'm profoundly convinced that we are facing an organized invasion and not a spontaneous movement of refugees. So basically, there are three invasion quotes. God, I mean, they are... Indistinguishable. It's just, they are indistinguishable. But I would say that the New Zealand mass murderer, he's somehow so psychotic that he's going to think his own opinion about who is an invader is important. So I'm going to attribute the third quote to him. I'm going to attribute the millions on our shores to Orban. And I'm going to attribute the, I think, what was the second quote to Zeman. Well, congratulations, you got every single one wrong. <laughs> so, first one, millions of invaders are landing on our shores, conquering our towns. That was the New Zealand shooter. The second, we don't see them as Muslim refugees, we see them as Muslim invaders. That was Orban. And the third was, I'm convinced that this is an organized invasion, was Milos Zeman, president of the Czech Republic. All referring specifically to Muslim migrants or Muslim refugees. A president, a prime minister... And a mass murderer. Yeah. Question two. So again, we have three quotes, and it's who said which one. All right. The first person is uh, Heinz Christian Strache, 
who was vice chancellor uh, in Austria just until May 2019. Uh, the government fell apart. Uh, and so he's from the Freedom Party, which, by the way, was founded by actual Nazis, let's remember. I mean, you could say, oh, they're former Nazis. I don't know, former Nazis. Does anybody ever a former Nazi? I don't know. Anyway, so the second person is Matteo Salvini of Italy, who is now the deputy prime minister and the interior minister. And the third is the Norwegian extreme right mass murderer Anders Breivik, who murdered 77 people back in 2011. Again, taken from his manifesto. Are you ready? I'm ready. The first quote, multiculturalist elites have managed to destroy fundamental structures of European society. They are allowing millions of Muslims to colonize Europe. B, the country should quickly put an end to this policy of Islamization. Otherwise, we Europeans will come to an abrupt end. And C, the culture of Islam is backward, not compatible with our society. If you want to live in peace, you have to prepare for war. Uh, again, a little bit of guesswork, but given that Breivik killed so many people just so tragically on that island in Norway, mm-hmm. that talk of war, that third quote, I'm going to attribute to him. Okay. I'm going to attribute multicultural elites to Straka of Austria, and I'm going to attribute the quotation about the country. What was that one? The country is... The country should quickly put an end to this policy of Islamization. Otherwise, we Europeans will come to an abrupt end. I guess I'll attribute that to Salvini. Again, all wrong. Very good. Very well done. It's really hard to do. <laughs> I've never, we've never actually had a quiz where it's so gruesome uh, and uh, it's, that it's, it's, you know, you want to laugh, but you kind of don't, disturbing. but it's you don't want to laugh. But it's just telling, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so let's just review. So yeah. So it was Breivik who was going on about uh, multiculturalist elites and allowing the fundamental structures to collapse, blah, blah, blah. Um, Strasha was the one who said quickly put an end to the Islamization. And it was Salvini who was saying, we have to prepare for war. So that was from a speech uh, in January 2017. After that, he was elected. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. Think about it that way. Yeah. Question three. And we're going to do it a little bit different. I'm going to give you three statements by leading politicians from the far-right AFD in Germany. So the Alternative for Deutschland. Two of them are real, and one of them is fake. I just made it up, okay? So you have to figure out which is the made-up one. Quote A. Police must use firearms if necessary to stop refugees coming into Germany. B. Germany should make a 180-degree turn from the tradition of remembering and atoning for the Nazi era. And C, the Nazi era is a speck of bird poop in Germany's history. So one of these quotes, it's just a made-up quote. Mm -hmm. All right. So I think Beatrice von Storch did talk about using force against migrants. And the 180-degree turn quote is plausible. So first two quotes, I would say, are the correct ones. The Nazi era as, as a bit of bird shit of history. I'm going to say that's, the, that's the, the made up one. You're going to be very disappointed in me because they're, they're actually all three are from the AFD. <laughs> oh, Sorry. God. I do apologize. Um, <laughs> no, a- all right. So the first one, uh, I, I, I can't remember if Stork did say something about that or not, but, but this particular quote I was thinking of was Frauke Petri, who led the party between... Oh, 15, that was Frauke Petri. Yeah. And, Do we know when she said that? Uh, she said that in January 2016. <laughs> and then there was a great quote. Was like, the last German politician who condoned the shooting of refugees was Eric Honecker. <laughs> nice. Uh, second one about the 180-degree turn, that was actually uh, said by Bjorn Hörke, who led the party in the Turingen uh, region and called for a 180 degree turn. For that rhetoric, the administrators at Buchenwald 
former concentration camp and memorial in Turingen, his, his home state, banned the AFD politicians from any commemorative events after that. And the bird poop, June 2018, AFD's co-leader Alexander Goland referred to the Nazi era as a speck of bird poop in German history. So... That's your AFD quiz, and that's the, that's the final question. You just mentioned human experimentation there and various other practices that we associate with the, the Nazi era, with fascism, the kind of fascism that we saw in the 30s and 40s. Do you think it's effective to evoke Nazism and fascism when we're warning about the far right and the extreme far right in 2019? Well, there's two things. I mean, first, if you don't look at history and you don't really examine the history, then, you know, you are doomed to repeat it or to you know, repeat parts of it. There used to be something called Godwin's Law that, you know, oh, yeah. that uh, someone came up with and said, you know, anytime you're involved in an internet argument, whoever, you know, mentions the Nazis first loses. And Godwin actually himself suspended that law. Uh, he himself said, you know, no, that doesn't apply anymore. So look, what it does is it provides a contact point on values for people. It provides an example of the worst of the worst and something that is recognized and understood generally that people learn about and understand how horrific things can get. And when you look at things that are going on now in Europe and the United States, no, none of it is the Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp. Duh, of course. But, you know, the Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp did not exist in 1933, right? That's not where things start. Things don't start at the end, right? Things start at the beginning. And how do we get down that road? So when we look at the demonization of a minority or different minorities, and we look at the creation of this other, that allows us to dehumanize and then commit crimes against them. We want to stop that early not try to stop it later when the when the horrors are even worse. Stop the little horrors as soon as you can so we don't get worse horrors later. And I think that's been the lesson. We know what causes these atrocities, and it's the smaller abuses that happen first, and that's why we need to stop them and pay attention to them. Tony Blair was British Prime Minister during the late 1990s and early 2000s when the UK was a leading player in the European Union. Blair opened Britain to workers from new Eastern European member states, but doing so helped lay the groundwork for perceived frustrations with immigration that are part of the explanation for Brexit. These days, Blair is one of Britain's most articulate advocates for remaining in the EU, but he is reviled by many of those who share his European agenda because he took Britain into the Iraq War. Despite it all, Blair remains deeply engaged in European affairs, and he is eager to see other countries overcome their own nationalist and populist spasms. He spoke to us in late June in Brussels at the annual European Development Days conference, where he was attending as the head of his own Institute on Globalization. I first asked him about the chances that closed societies those societies that cut themselves off from trade and migration are starting to win out against the kinds of open societies he advocates. I think in this battle between open and closed, because I think this is a fundamental distinction in attitude towards the process of globalization, 
mean, my view is that globalization is an unstoppable force in the end because it's driven by people, it's driven by technology and travel and migration and so on and trade. But if Western societies, because they're worried about issues like immigration, if they start to shut down and disengage from the world, they'll do themselves damage. Now, you need proper controls on immigration, of course, but the truth is the world that's developing requires an open-minded approach because it's through the greater connectivity that you have that you succeed and your economies succeed. The danger, though, if you had to... Yeah, the danger... You're not allowed to say, I'm not a betting man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, by the way, but uh, <laughs> at least there's one vice less. But um, no, the, the, the danger, very simply, is if you end up with closed societies in the West and then that starts get, getting mirrored by closed societies in developing nations, you will just slow down the process of trade and commerce and investment. And you will also produce problems within societies because you will get immigration. I mean, it's, it's, you know, this is just something that's happened in the world over the past decades and it will continue. Um, and then you'll start to cause real tensions within your own societies. Whereas today, the future lies in helping people traverse the boundaries of faith and culture and race and ethnicity. You famously took on Nigel Farage in a European Parliament committee meeting yeah. in 2005. So, you know, you're the perfect person to ask, how do we take on the nationalist populists of 2019 and win? So in my view, you have to do two things. First of all, the populists exploit grievances, but they don't invent them on the whole. So you've got to deal with those grievances. So if you've got problems, for example, around the immigration question, you've got to deal with those anxieties. If you've got communities that feel isolated and left behind, you've got to help them. Um, if you've got a problem with young people who are alienated, you've got to find a way of reintegrating them with society. So you've got to deal with the underlying problems. But then secondly, is you've got to show people how the future can be made to work. Because populism is, is based on pessimism in the end. You know, if you're pessimistic about the world, you look for someone to blame. If you're optimistic about the world, hey, everything's an opportunity for you. You know, that's, so this is the, we have got to create a narrative of optimism about the future. And I think at the center of that is actually the technological revolution. I think it will change everything in society. Um, I think it offers us real challenges, obviously, of displacement of jobs and, um, you know, changes that are going to be quite painful in some ways, but it also offers us tremendous possibilities and opportunities. And, you know, what we need to do is to show people that we can deal with these problems of inequality and grievance, and we can actually produce a more optimistic and better future for people. And the way of doing that is not to close down in the face of the world, but in fact, to open up to its, its, its you know, enormous promise. Uh, because the other thing is to take a step back and realize that over the past half century, you know, whatever our challenges, the world has made progress and it's only made it by you know, when sensible politics beats bad politics. And in today's world, today's multipolar world, can that progress be made without a close relationship with the European Union? No, Europe's a vital part of it. This is one of the reasons why it, it's such a profound historical mistake for Britain to try and pull itself away from Europe. Now, the European Union's got a, a huge role to play, but it's, it's got to recognize two things. I mean, one, 
that the European Union stands for values and not just interests. And I think those values are very critical to um, the European Union having a strong sense of itself. But secondly, you know, we've got to we've got to work on making it more effective, uh, more efficient. You know, there are things that Europe could be doing today that it's, uh, you know, that it it really needs to do, like you know, common energy policy, working out, you know, why, why is it that we don't have big European technology companies, but the next 20 years of technology is going to be China and America. It's got to be how do we unite together around defense in a world in which America might either want to be disengaged or where it's problems that Europe needs to handle on its own. So there are practical things Europe's got to get to grips with and deal with. But the basic idea of Europe is, is essential because in the modern world that's developing, for countries, even larger European nations like Britain or, or Germany or France, you know, countries are going to need to come together because in the middle of this century, we're going to have America, China, who are going to be giants and probably India alongside them. And everyone else is going to need to come together in order to continue to exert influence and protect their interests. What, why is it in Europe's interest to get investment going in Africa? So investment in Africa is, is really quite apart from something that helps the poorest people in the world. I think there's a, there's a moral compulsion for that. But it's actually massively in Europe's self-interest. So if you take the Sahel at the moment, which is the five countries across that northern part of sub-Saharan Africa, all with big problems of exploding populations, poor governance, poverty, um, weak institutions, if those countries go wrong, that problem is not going to stay in those countries' borders. That problem is going to end up on the doorstep of Europe. So Europe, there are self-interested reasons as well as, 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 well as moral reasons for having a, a big component of what Europe does, trying to help development in the poorest parts of the world, especially Africa. And what more can Europe do to... Why isn't that investment flowing in the quantities that it should? I think all Western systems tend to be overly bureaucratic. It's one reason why, frankly, the Chinese often uh, run rings around the Westerners in, in the African context. Um, but it's also that we need to, I think, focus more on governance, the quality of governance. And by that, I mean not just whether African governments take action on corruption and issues to do with honesty and integrity, but, but help governments build the capacity to govern effectively. Because in the end, the toughest thing about government is getting things done, getting the job done. And the best way to get the job done is through effective implementation that means you're prioritizing what you need to do as a government and you've got the personnel and the policy to, to make it happen. And so if we start with governance and we move on to investment, we start to solve some of the migration issues. Is that sort of yeah. the way you would see it? So absolutely. So the, there's, if you like, a virtuous circle around um, governance, investment, and migration. So if, you, if you've got, for example, in, within government, if you're in an African country and the government puts in place the right uh, environment and framework to attract investment into the country, then it will attract it. Uh, if it attracts it, there are more jobs there. Um, you know, the government center has got more money to spend on its people, and then you'll reduce the pressures on migration. That's EU Scream for this week. 
You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at euscreams, and like us on Facebook. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening.